traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. On the 8th of May 1945, jubilant crowds filled streets across the Western world to celebrate the success of a collective effort to defeat a terrible evil. Nazi Germany's surrender to the Allies, marking the end of World War II in Europe. 75 years on, armed forces have been mobilised to fight a new global enemy, unlike any faced in modern times. In Wuhan, China's People's Liberation Army was given control of medical and essential supplies. America sent a pair of naval hospital ships to relieve Los Angeles and New York. In Italy and Spain, troops have been patrolling the streets to enforce strict lockdowns. And in Britain, soldiers who honed their logistic skills in Helmand and Basra are now driving oxygen tanks and delivering medical equipment. Yet as armies grapple with the pandemic on the ground, geopolitical jostling continues unabated. The pandemic has highlighted fissures in fragile alliances as commanders-in-chief face both familiar threats and a new common enemy. You're listening to The Economist Asks, I'm Anne McElvoy, and this week we're asking, what can past wars teach us about conquering coronavirus? My guest is head of the British Armed Forces, General Sir Nick Carter. Chief of the Defence Staff, he's the most senior uniformed military advisor to the government. He served in Germany during the Cold War, during the sectarian conflict in Northern Ireland, and he's commanded troops in Bosnia and Kosovo, as well as tours in Iraq and Afghanistan, where he was deputy commander of the NATO mission. General Sinek Carter, welcome to The Economist Asks. No, thanks, Anne. It's very good to be with you. You've described the army's mobilisation against coronavirus as the single greatest logistical challenge of your career. And that's a career that's been spent in big, incredibly difficult theatres of warfare. So give us a sense, if you could, of the scale and nature of this challenge and why it's different. Well, I think it's different because so much of the way that government is organised is on the basis of being as efficient as possible. And therefore, all of our logistic systems uh, tend to be what they call leaned out. And those logistic systems depend upon supply chains that are obviously global. So when you're confronted by something where you have to have a massive increase in the demand signal, all of a sudden you've got a very different ask. And in the case of the NHS, they had to go from something like 240 customers at their normal, uh, at their normal business to something near uh, 50,000 customers. And that, of course, is a massive expansion of the logistic effort. We've also been helping with these Nightingale hospitals, and that's been a very large ask to create 10 hospitals, essentially field hospitals, from almost nothing. I was in Bristol last week visiting the Bristol Nightingale, and that's really interesting how the teams come together, because what the military's done is to provide some of the things that are useful to us in wartime. If you could give me a concrete example of where you experience, say, in building field hospitals in battle zones, where is that? relevant to adapting buildings for extra capacity in the coronavirus outbreak here at home? How does it work? So, for example, we're quite good at chemical, biological 
radiological and nuclear challenges where you're going to be masked up and that's why it's relevant. So if you're completely covered in PPE from head to foot, it's jolly difficult to see where you're going. And therefore what you need are simple drills so that you're able to go where you need to go without falling over things uh, and indeed not messing up infection elsewhere. So for example, very clear arrows and indicators on the floor that people can see often lit up and then doors are often marked red or green to um, make sure that you go through the right one uh, and that you don't get through the wrong one. And this is simple stuff that um, we understand from our sort of drills in that environment. You know, if you're building a, a hospital from first principles in a normal environment, that's probably a, a five-year project. And of course, what we've had to do is to try and create these things often less than three weeks. Um, the one in Bristol was built in 23 days, for example. So there's a speed thing. There's then also an austere thing. You know, you're not necessarily going to have everything that you want to be able to do it. And then, of course, there's a lot of improvisation. And those are the sort of things that I think are relevant to battlefields. And of course, that we've demonstrated in the past. You've painted a very positive picture. But if, if we look to well-informed press reports. We've, we've seen stories of rather chaotic miscommunication between NHS uh, England and its headquarters, between hospitals on the ground and the government, and reports of some frustration from the army uh, trying to help with the logistics. Are you in danger of glossing over things that have actually been rather chaotic in, in the response to the virus in the UK? I mean, I think there was a, a report about a month ago of somebody anonymously observing that life was a little complicated. But actually what I've found in the, both in talking to the NHS staff at every level, but also the military staff at every level, is that actually these are two professional organisations that have come together rather well. And when you think that we're encountering, you know, such a significant challenge, as I described earlier, it's small wonder that actually we've been sort of feeling our way and some things haven't worked terribly well and there's been some chaos. And it would be, I think, inaccurate to describe it as being straightforward because, of course, this is a challenge that we've not encountered ever before. And indeed, it's probably a greater challenge than we've had for some 75 years. So you'd expect there to be some tension from time to time. But we've rather learned a lot from each other as organisations. And I think that we work rather well together as professionals. Now, the Air Force was deployed to fly PPE in a shipment from Turkey after it became clear that poor planning had left the UK without enough. A report says it came within days of running out. What happened? Um, well, first of all, I, I think I take issue with poor planning. I mean, these are unprecedented times and it's very difficult to know what the requirement is before you start these things. Doubtless, with the benefit of hindsight, people in due course may look into all of that. But no, the reason the Air Force was used is that our air transport fleet has capacity at the moment because we're not doing the sorts of things that we would normally do at the same level. So it makes absolute sense to be able to use our air transport fleet, which is very flexible, to go and collect materiel for the system if that is what is needed. And that expedition to Turkey was one of others that had been done. And frankly, I think it was a pretty successful expedition. Did it feel like an emergency? I think the whole thing has felt like an emergency all the way through from beginning to end. It's right to treat these things as emergencies because it does give you that sort of binding sense of purpose. What about disinformation and misinformation about the virus? I think you mentioned at a daily briefing that you gave not long ago that the 77 Brigade is working with the Cabinet Officer, with the heart of, of government, to help wash rumours. And this is something not uh, peculiar to the UK. A lot of concern about disinformation and misinformation in the United States and the other democracies. How practical is it to combat that kind of threat, given that it's very disaggregated? It's simply about where people go to get information, perhaps without realising, or in some cases, deliberately choosing to place limitations on the truthfulness of what they want to put across. 
It may sound a bit pedantic, but I think you have to distinguish between disinformation and misinformation. And of course, misinformation will come from, you know, people who may have got scams going, conspiracy theorists and jokers and all the rest of it. And a lot of what our 77 Brigade has been doing in support of the Cabinet Office has been after misinformation and finding misinformation and then getting other parts of government or indeed the media to call them out. Um, to some people, that would sound like somebody one that they won't be very much aware that there's something called the 77 Brigade and what it does. And it does sound quite secretive. Can you just throw a bit of light on how it works? It is something that we created not for this purpose. It's something that was created for battlefields when, of course, increasingly the information dimension of you know what we do on battlefields is becoming really important. And essentially, we would use it in an environment like, say, Afghanistan uh, to be able to connect to the population or indeed to the outside world to get the message across that perhaps one might in the past have described as propaganda, but is actually much more about getting to the truth of things. And of course, so much now is done on things like social media. You can see how making the connection to a relevant part of the population in a tactical environment is relevant. Now, those skill sets are helpful to government more broadly. And that's why they've been used, not I have to say to put messages out, but just to identify things that are going awry. And it's then absolutely down to others to put those messages right. So would you get involved in something like the disinformation about 5G, that it had something to do with the outbreak of coronavirus in the UK? No, it'd be much more about identifying that there was a story going on and then giving it to others at the political level to sort out for themselves. It would be inappropriate for the military to be involved in um, propaganda at home, if you if you could put it like that. You know, a capability that was designed for the battlefield, you know, has advantages at this level, but that's not the way we're going to use it. It's about um, identifying challenges for others to solve. Well, tomorrow, May the 8th, is the 75th anniversary of victory in Europe following the Second World War. It's a day that was celebrated at the time, of course, of the, the liberation from the Third Reich and the, the Nazi threat. What does it mean to you today to look back on that when we live in a world without the threat of world war, but many very urgent threats that seem harder to pin down? Yes, I mean, I think one has to be slightly careful about using the V day and perhaps the wartime analogy in relation to what we're doing now. But I think what we learned from V day and from everything that took place in the Second World War is that challenges of that order need a national effort to solve them. It's not just simply about the military. And as we see with what we're doing today, it's not just simply about the NHS or whoever else on the front line. It's about all of us getting behind to fix it. And I think it's also about international alliances. And we would not have um, prevailed 75 years ago if it hadn't been for uh, our allies. And in particular, there you're thinking about the Dominions and, of course, the United States and, for that matter, the Soviet Union. And then, of course, you're also thinking about all of the free forces of the many nations that have been overwhelmed by the Germans fighting with us. And I think that resonates today when we're looking at a global problem and a lot of global problems. And those are really only solved, frankly, by people working together internationally. And what, what do you expect then from our allies in Europe, particularly our big traditional military ally is France, but also to an extent uh, Germany? And I know you've worked very hard on that sort of Anglo-German relationship in the military sphere. And yet there's a sense that it is, it's piecemeal, isn't it? It's, it's every country for itself. And there's not much sign of things coming back together into what I think you're suggesting we need, which is a more robust and reliable united way of dealing with COVID-19 and the aftermath? I mean, I think there are, have been some indications for people working together. I mean, this week alone, the Prime Minister chaired a global meeting to talk about 
the vaccine. I also think we're beginning to coalesce about thinking about vulnerable countries because we're not going to be able to solve the problem of all the vulnerable countries in particularly the developing world unless we do that on a team basis. What about the response of, of Donald Trump? It somewhat veers from the desultory to sometimes perhaps to the eccentric in his own response and suggestions about how to deal with coronavirus. Does that worry you? Um, no, I, I'm not sure it does. I mean, I think when you talk to the, the American machine and everything that's happening with the United States, speaking as a military officer, all I can really do is to give a military perspective on it. You know, we, we still continue to have the sorts of conversations that I think you'd hope would be had about how we are going to get after this challenge. And indeed, how we're going to get after what needs to happen as we start to merge from the challenge. But it must be at some level, as you have deep military ties with the US, but we have also seen a pretty disaggregated response in the US. And this is obviously such a major player in any argument or any debate about where the international system goes next. So when you are sitting down there with your opposite number, most senior commanders in the US, what are you asking for? I'm regularly talking to my US opposite number at the moment, Mark Milley, the chairman of the US Joint Chiefs of Staff. You know, we have a close relationship as do our militaries. And um, he sees it in much the same way I do that, you know, this is going to be a problem that is a global problem that needs to be solved globally. He sees it very much from a perspective of, you know, what the US can do to lead the Western world through this. So I'm, I'm, you know, I'm confident from a military perspective, he sees it in exactly the same way that I've been describing it. Uh, you're one of the few people who've seen the Five Eyes security report that suggested China covered up this outbreak and indeed may have made it worse by its early lack of cooperation. I mean, what do you conclude from the reports that you're seeing? I mean, I think it's unhelpful at this stage to have a witch hunt. I think what we've got to focus on is how we prevent this from happening in the future. Going back to my point that ultimately we need to be able to work together to solve the problem. A witch hunt is not going to exactly encourage teamwork. So what's needed at the moment? I mean, a witch hunt suggests that there's nothing to find. I mean, a witch hunt is a phrase used when one doesn't particularly want to go and find something? Well, personally, I've I've seen no evidence of this being a deliberate act by anybody or it coming from a a particular mistake from anywhere either. So when Mike Pompeo says there's evidence, enormous evidence, he said, the virus initiated the Wuhan Institute of Virology and the US intelligence community would appear to be quite divided on this issue. One of the things that you have to do, I suppose, is kind of weigh up different forms of intelligence and come to come to your own view. I know you're not exactly going to read out uh, classified intel, sadly for us, on the show. But, but <laughs> where, but yeah, I don't put you in an impossible position on that, General, but where, you know, where do you come down on that kind of question? My perspective is that I have personally seen no evidence that it emerges from any deliberate act or mistake by any government. Um, and my own view is that what we've now got to do is to work out globally how we prevent this sort of thing from happening again. And how would you do that? Well, again, I mean, it, it comes down to a global conversation. And those at that moment tend to best be had probably in UN circumstances or through the G20 or however it might be. But at the end of the day, I think that's got to be the conversation. And this is an interesting question, isn't it? I mean, you're very closely in, involved in debates about the future of NATO and how it, it should work in future as a defensive alliance. We might come on to external threats in, in just a moment. But even that kind of argument has been reshaped by the pandemic. We've seen countries collaborating on joint vaccine funding pledges, absolutely huge $8 billion commitment organised by the European Union, in this case, with pledges from Japan, Canada, Australia. Even Madonna got involved. So clearly it's it's serious. 
But the US was absent. And I guess that brings us to the question of where we see the role of the United States in this persistent defence alliance of NATO and what will it mean for the future. There's been absolutely no question of the US being right at the heart of all of the NATO activity that we've been involved in over the last um, two to three years. And, you know, they were very much at the heart of the new NATO military strategy that was published last year. And they're very much at the heart of the work that we're now doing to take the NATO military strategy to its next level. So I, I don't see any evidence of doing anything different there. President Macron, France made some pretty disobliging comments to the Economist, indeed, before Christmas, that NATO had lost its purpose. It had perhaps outlived its usefulness in many regards. How did you feel when you heard that? Well, I mean, I I was interested in his perspective. I mean, I always think he has a a very good strategic view of the world. Um, And actually, I think some of the questions he asked are the reason why we now have a NATO reflection process. But I also think one needs to give credit to the extent to which NATO has modernised over the course of the last five years. Uh, Macron's points went quite deep, didn't they? they? They weren't simply, we need a period of reflection here. He seemed to be suggesting that if NATO continued on the, the course it was on, that it was losing a degree of, of public faith about what its mission is and belief in it, and that it was losing capability to act. Was he right? So my sense is that in terms of the, the military perspective on all of that, the answer is that the alliance is very strong at the moment, and that falls out of you know the work that's been done to develop a new strategy, but also to work out how you're going to implement that strategy, which takes a 360-degree approach for the first time ever. NATO was always oriented in one direction when we were growing up through the Cold War. So I, I think there's unanimity of view that NATO's t- going to take a broader sense of purpose about what it does. And in terms of public support, I've certainly seen no indications that there's any diminution in support for NATO. Let's look to uh, what this means for the so-called global ceasefire. The UN was bidding for that and suggesting that that would be one positive response to the coronavirus pandemic globally. The US countered that it could restrict the pursuit of terrorists in Iraq. What is your view of the usefulness of this rather sweeping idea of a, a global ceasefire in the main conflicts that are haunting the world? I mean, the challenge, of course, is that that's something that might be signed up to states, some states. But of course, so much of the challenges in this world are from non-state actors. And uh, the extent to which Daesh or its affiliated organisations, ISIS as others prefer to call it, are going to sign up to a ceasefire, I remain doubtful about. I'm certain they might have to limit some of their activities because the virus will be a problem for them in the same way it is for everybody else. But I don't see any diminution in their ambition, certainly, to continue to make mischief. Let's look at somewhere, you know, the conflict that divides a lot of op- opinion, Afghanistan, uh, which you, you know in depth. Uh, you've been deputy commander of the NATO mission in Afghanistan and, and led the transition process there with the now President Ashraf Ghani. Well, the US signed a peace deal with the Taliban in late February. But those talks don't seem to be materialising. The Taliban seem to have stepped up their attacks on Afghan security forces. Are we actually getting anywhere or is this a bit of a a Potemkin process? I think um, we all should acknowledge that the only way generally to end wars, unless you completely oppress your opponent, is that you've got to have a conversation. What's been encouraging about the last sort of year and a half's worth of political activity in Afghanistan is it has involved conversations. First of all, President Ghani was very brave back in February of 2019 to offer a ceasefire and to offer a conversation in the way that he did. And since then, the United States um, has, I think, also been relatively courageous in asking the Taliban to talk. You've got to, therefore, I think, 
give the thing some patience. You've got to be patient in seeing how it's going to play out. Yes, it is absolutely true that there is still significant violence occurring in Afghanistan, although the violence is now limited to rural areas on the whole. Sadly, people are dying at a rate. But the reality is that there is a much more optimistic sense that this conversation could lead somewhere. And I think we've got to be patient in allowing that process to unfold during the course of the summer. What percentage chance would you give this peace deal of working out in the end, allowing for patience? I mean, you'd be a mug, I have to say, in my 20-year association with Afghanistan to put any uh, percentage against any outcome. Uh, It's always going to be a, a, a bucking bronco in terms of the way the things unfold. What impact would you say the pandemic is having in terms of the global outlook of what we might call bad or dangerous actors? Um, You gave an interview, I think, towards the back end of of last year, emphasising how much cyber activity we were seeing, hostile cyber activity from Russia. I think there was a a recent event on about March the 11th when NATO jets had to scramble to intercept Russian planes off the coasts of Ireland and Scotland. How frequently is this sort of thing going on? I think sort of every every week to two weeks. Um, I mean, I didn't see any diminution in the um, sort of activity that we've seen over the last year and a half to two years at all. But then equally, we're we're also doing what we do. Um, And we've got a an operation come exercise going on off the northern coast of Norway at the moment. And we've still got people exercising in parts of Europe, particularly in Estonia, where we have a, a battle group at the moment. So, I mean, neither the Russians or, for that matter, NATO are, are really taking their foot off the gas. Clearly, the big exercise that the Americans planned this year called Defender 20 hasn't happened. But that was for understandable reasons, given that it was right at the peak of the infection in Europe. And it would have been rather counterintuitive to have brought 20,000 Americans over to Europe at that point in time. But in general terms, I think the the level of effort and activity is you know, not far off what we normally would expect to see. But that makes it sound like a bit of an ongoing game, doesn't it? Russians buzz around in, in jets too, you know, too close to uh, the borders of, of countries in, in Western Europe. You do your war gaming and exercises. From the Russian perspective, they would say provocatively close to Russia. What's been gained by all of this? And there's an awful lot of worry if you live in a country that's very close to Russia, and they need reassuring. So there's a huge amount, I think, of reassurance that's necessary in this. But I also think it's important in the context of modern deterrence to be clear about um, how responses will receive responses. And of course, what's slightly changing in the information environment in which we now operate is that you know, sort of capability and credibility, which usually underpin deterrence, I think, are now being amplified by competition. And I think that if you're prepared to create a vacuum these days, there's a real risk that that vacuum will be filled. The National Cybersecurity Centre here in the UK advised recently, jointly with the Department of Homeland Security in the US, over so-called advanced persistent threat actors, groups exploiting the pandemic to get access to information, to intellectual property, to targeting pharmaceutical companies, among others. Is this something that you're seeing arising specifically related to the context we're in of COVID-19. Where are the threats mainly coming from? Um, I mean, I think they come from the the usual places that we have noticed in the past. And of course, you know, where where you have a crisis... That's a bit mysterious to to those of us who are not sitting around the table with the Joint Chiefs of Staff. Well, I think it's more of our authoritarian political opponents who want to have a go at us. You know, one of the things that's playing out, isn't it, with this coronavirus thing is there's a bit of a a bit of a competition, isn't there, between whether authoritarian is the right answer or the sort of Western liberal democratic ideals that we stand for is going to be the best way of solving this problem. And of course, what disinformation 
does, doesn't it? Is to try to play to existing divides. And I think that's what you see playing out. It is an obvious opportunity for those who would continue to wish to make mischief and spread disinformation. The big background to this is, of course, defence spending. Uh, unsurprisingly, you, you lobby for that uh, heavily with the government. What does the decline of GDP, which uh, looks like it's going to be very hollowed out across Europe and indeed across the, the US too, what is that going to mean for those NATO spending targets, the sort of 2% minimum spending target uh, that you and others have been advocating? Well, there's obviously a risk, isn't there, in the short term over the next year or two that a smaller GDP equals smaller defence spending, and there's clearly a, a risk to that. But having said all of that, I think Are that you saying it's an excuse for countries, you know, Germany is often accused of sort of playing a very long game on raising its defence expenditure. Is that something that you'd be worried about in this context? I mean, I think if you've got a commitment for 2% of GDP, that's a commitment. Uh, if GDP becomes slightly less, then clearly 2% is going to mean so much, but the commitment remains there. And I think that, you know, raising the bar for all the countries of NATO to deliver against the 2% is something that we strongly advocate. There are still more that have got to make that challenge. Now, I mean, I think my point I was going on to make was that, you know, in times of crisis, inevitably, that plays to a less secure world. And of course, what we've demonstrated uh, throughout the COVID crisis is that we are something that represents ultimate resilience to the nation and to the government. Uh, and that ultimate resilience is something that perhaps COVID demonstrates you need to invest in. Uh, and I think resilience will be very much a feature of those who look back on this in historical terms and consider what we should do. We should talk about your role and what you've done uh, since you've been in, in charge over all of the, the armed forces and some of those big strategic questions. And there's a top to bottom reorganisation called Army 2020. 2020 probably looks a bit different than when you uh, started on that project. I think the UK is not alone in, in taking a root and branch view of its armed forces, where they fit in the society and indeed their broader role. I mean, how has the role of the army changed from the one that you joined as a young soldier? Well, of course, when I joined, it was um, at the height of the Cold War. And uh, the nearest you were going to get to a medal was if you were deployed to Northern Ireland. And of course, since the Cold War ended, you know, my generation has sort of stepped through the Balkans and then we had 9-11 and that took us to Iraq and of course to Afghanistan. And actually, those who um, were involved in those campaigns have had probably more combat experience than many had had since 1945. So I think the context has been, of course, very different. But of course, what has really changed is that um, we have a pace of change that is so fast and technology is changing things at a rate that means that the character of warfare is now fundamentally different. And, and so much of what we're trying to do now in terms of um, modernising and transforming the armed forces is fundamentally about the people dimension of it, because they're your adaptive edge at the end of the day. And how much has the army changed in the time that you've been in it and you've risen through the ranks and you're now top brass, uh, lots of pips on, on shoulders and gold braid, when it comes to the role of women, for instance, women, but also the diversity of the armed forces, which has been criticised as being too narrow. The thing that's changed most markedly for me in the last three years in particular is all of the roles inside the armed forces and for that matter inside the army have been opened up to women. And of course, because we're a bottom fed organisation, it'll take a while for that to find its way up through the military so that we've got the proper representation. But there are indications that we are beginning to pull more women through. And we now have got you know, the first three star, that's one rank below my rank, uh, female, uh, working at the top of defence. And we've now got lots of two stars, that's two levels below me, working in defence as well. But it's not enough. And I think we still need to take positive action to be able to make that happen. 
And then, of course, there is the challenge of making sure that we genuinely represent the society that we are drawn from. And again, we've got work to do to, I think, improve our BME figures to the black and minority ethnic communities uh, in this country. Some criticism that the culture is slow to change, that there is still racism in the ranks. I mean, I've always found the military to be extraordinarily inclusive when it comes to people. Provided you can do your job, you will succeed. And indeed, I read a tremendous article that was um, in The Economist last year about this very point from a chap who comes from Pakistani origins, who um, unusually for uh, his background joined the British army and he served in Iraq. And he observed, once he left the army, that the thing that really made him love it was the fact that he was respected for being who he was and what he did, not from where he came from. So I I think it's a slightly unfair criticism. I think, generally speaking, people want people who are good to come and work with them. Is the recruitment base really so different? I mean, what kind of people are joining the armed forces who you maybe would have overlooked before? We have recruitment adverts targeted on selfie addicts, phone zombies, gamers and snowflakes, which caused a bit of a debate about whether that was an ironic use of that derogatory term for the young. But are you looking for snowflakes and gamers, like for real? I mean, I think like every Um, all sorts of industries uh, at the moment. We're after people with science, technology, engineering and mechanical skills. And our need for that is the same as many of the professions out there. And funnily enough, it's interesting. We we now have, as you know, this national cyber force and we are building it on the go at the moment. And it's been fascinating how many people from right across the armed forces, from all sorts of different backgrounds, whether they joined as engineers or infantry soldiers or pilots or whatever else it might be, you know, have come forward to want to play in that sort of game. So, yes, it is about digital skills and STEM skills, but it's still also about the sort of more humble skills that armies and, that, for that matter, marines have always needed because, ultimately, the nature of war hasn't changed. There's still a need to close with and engage the enemy at close quarters, and that still requires some of the sorts of um, physical demands and courageous demands that are perhaps called on from more humble places. And that doesn't change, but perhaps there is a, a greater reluctance to be sort of told what to think and told what to do. And some of that to an extent goes with, with life in the armed forces. But is there room for dissent for a young person who's thinking, I might be interested in this in a, in a career, but how much will I be, actually be able to object if I think something is wrong? You know, quite a lot of people listening will think that some of the examples you've given, that I'm sure your, your soldiers performed very bravely, that, that some of the conflicts they've been involved in, Iraq and Afghanistan, were not necessary conflicts. So I think there's always room for challenge. Um, and fun enough, our command philosophy is one that encourages challenge until such time as a decision has been made. And once the decision's been made, you sort of get on with it unless things go horribly wrong. So I don't don't think so. I mean, I think we do encourage that culture. It's a culture where we give somebody a task, but we also give them a sense of purpose in which that task fits. Battlefields, and for that matter, to a degree, the modern environment, are chaotic environments. And you will miss fleeting opportunities if you're very centralised in the way that you organise yourselves to deal with these things. We should finish uh, on VE Day as you're, you're looking back. How are you going to be spending VE Day, I suppose, plans for large-scale commemorations and uh, celebrations of the liberation in Europe 75 years ago are on hold? What will you be doing? 
Well, of course, um, a lot of it has had to be sort of set up virtually, hasn't it? I mean, it is going to be an unusual way to celebrate VE Day. And I feel particularly sorry for those veterans who are still alive, who, of course, really would have liked to have been strutting their stuff in the mall and, for that matter, uh, on horse guards. And it's jolly sad for them that they're not going to be able to do that. So I think on VE Day, my thoughts are going to be with them, recognising what they did for us and the sacrifice that they and their brethren did for our freedom. We've had an extraordinary reminder of the spirit that helped win the Second World War with Captain Tom Moore, a veteran who's just turned 100, raised £30 million pounds for, for the uh, NHS and a number one single to, to boot. We've also got Vera Lynn, uh, the wartime sweetheart songstress. <laughs> She's in the charts again, singing We'll Meet Again. It's all marvellous. It's admirable. It's inspiring. Fills the newspapers at a difficult time. But there's a sense sometimes of Britain being backward-looking. Do we need new heroes? Um, Well, I think this crisis is demonstrating that we've got lots and lots of new heroes, whether it was uh, Colonel Tom, as I'll now call him, because he was promoted last week on his birthday, or whether it's the frontline workers on the health and social and um, clinical care staff. Um, But actually, I think the important thing to remember, of course, is that actually when you look back to World War II, what you're really looking for, I think, are the values and standards and um, traditions that those who fought during the war espoused. And that actually is what we need these days, I think, and it's probably what we need looking forward as we emerge from this crisis. General Sinek Carter, thank you very much for joining us. Thanks, Anne, very much. I'm looking forward to promotion on my 100th birthday. <laughs> and we'd love to know what you think. Send us your nominations for the unsung heroes of this crisis or which past ones might we want to emulate. And as the pandemic concentrates the efforts of armed forces and governments, what are the greatest threats that might be being overlooked? Write to us, radio at economist.com, or you can tweet us at Economist Radio. And for more of our journalism around coronavirus and much beyond, you can subscribe at economist.com slash radio offer. I'm Anne McElvoy, and in London, this is The Economist. 